As we come to the scripture, let's uh, pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, here we are to open your word and we pray that uh, we would see our Lord Jesus. So please now reveal uh, to us who he is, who we are in him, in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, turn to John chapter 4, the gospel of John chapter 4, please. Uh, I want to begin with verse 1 and read uh, for a while. John chapter 4, please. This is the word of the Lord. Now when uh, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Well, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give, that I will give him, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Well, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Well, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. Uh, When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Uh, Then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. 
Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the harvest fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and other reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Well, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I had ever, all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. And then together we say, The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Well, I just got to look at you. Uh, I trust a lot of people are going second service in order to come to the chili feed. So you all have to come back just to make sure they were in church today. So I trust, uh, I trust you. Uh, we've been talking about uh, encounters with Jesus. Particular people in the scripture have had encounters with Jesus. The purpose being that we realize that encounters with Jesus, as that old man Simeon said in the temple, uh, that encounters with Jesus uh, reveal our hearts. And thus determine our eternal destiny because how we see, relate to Jesus determines everything. Uh, This uh, woman that Jesus meets, let's see how it unfolds. Jesus had gotten into a little bit of trouble, as he often did with the religious authorities in Judea. So he was going to make his way to Galilee. And, uh, and to get to Galilee from where he was, he had to go through Samaria. Really, he didn't. He could have done what many Jews of his day did and go around it. It would be very inconvenient and a lot longer. So not everybody did that. But Jesus then uh, went through uh, Samaria. And uh, as he does, he happens upon, he comes upon, it's no happening, I suppose, or happenstance. It's the providence of God. He comes upon this woman at this well. He's, he's hungry and he's thirsty and he's sent off, it seems, his disciples to get food. Curiously, he sent 12 people away to get food for 13. Uh, you would think that perhaps he would only send a few uh, to bring back food for everybody. Uh, it could well be he wanted to be alone with this woman at this place, at this At this well. And now it was odd for Jesus uh, to be in Samaria in the first place, particularly even to be alone with a woman at this place, uh, as we have it parenthetically uh, in verse uh, uh, in verse nine. Uh, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see the tremendous barriers set up between Jews and Samaritans uh, relationally, so much so that they didn't speak to each other. Um, they wouldn't touch each other. They wouldn't eat out of the same bowls, drink out of the same cup. Uh, Samaritan was a four-letter word to a Jew. Not even say. They don't interact with one. 
And the reason for that was in some sense uh, racial, I suppose. There was some racial prejudice here uh, because in the uh, uh, later, early 700s, the Assyrians came into, BC that is, came into uh, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and uh, took it over. When they did, they exiled all the all the the really accomplished people, the others they left there, they brought other Gentiles in to live among those people. As they did, they intermarried. And so uh, in that sense, those who lived in Samaria uh, were not pure of race of Israelites. And that created a tremendous, uh, tremendously insulting, if you will, uh, offensive uh, to those who are true Israelites, And so that began the problem. And then there were religious issues because uh, these in Samaria only recognized the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, first five books of the Old Testament, uh, as being authoritative. And so they thought that one should worship in Mount Gerizim uh, uh, as opposed to in Jerusalem because that was the, the place of significance for Abraham, for Moses. And so for them, that was the place to worship. Uh, but those in the southern kingdom in Israel, uh, proper, if you will, at that time, uh, would see that we should worship as David had led to worship in Jerusalem. And so you get the problem there. So there were religious issues uh, as well. And then finally, uh, this woman, men, Israelite men didn't really interact with women publicly particularly religious men, the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees wouldn't even look on a woman in public. And so there were some Pharisees who had the nickname the Bleeding Pharisees because they kept running into things, uh, because they kept looking down every time a woman would show up. And so they were called the Bruised or the Bleeding uh, Pharisees. And so you get the sense that this was a significant thing. And, and especially for a rabbi to talk to a woman, not only was it a waste of time given how... Women were often looked upon in that day. <clears throat> but for a rabbi to be alone with a woman would be scandalous. But Jesus wasn't inhibited by any of those things because he had come for all kinds of people. And still then we have the problem that she's likely to have been ostracized by her own people, that sort of an outcast socially, because here she was at this, at this well at noontime. Now, very few people would show up at a well at noontime because it was the heat of the day, particularly uh, women. Women often came to the well together in groups uh, with friends and so forth, and they would often come either early in the morning and late, or late at night when it was, it was cooler. And, and so here she was in the middle of the day uh, at noon time um, alone uh, at the well and it's likely because a no one wants to be with her and b she probably wanted to be alone we, we get this sense that there were issues morally with this woman five husbands perhaps some had died unlikely all five had died and as we come to know she was living with a man and not married and so here she was, and Jesus uh, was uh, talking to her. It's a little expression in verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria. Well, in one sense, geographically it made sense for him too, but as we said, he didn't have to. He could have gone around, but you get the sense that there's something very significant going to happen as he comes to this place, and it seems like it's in relationship with this uh, with this woman, he 
sends the disciples away to get food. And there he sits uh, with her. You might remember last week we talked about Nicodemus. We talked about Jesus uh, coming, uh, encountering uh, this man, Nicodemus. And, and that seemed um, right to us in some way. I mean, Nicodemus uh, was a man. Nicodemus was an Israelite, a Jew. Uh, Nicodemus uh, had great standing religiously, right? He was a Pharisee, which meant he was one of the religious elite. He was a ruler, part of the Sanhedrin, which means he was part of the ones who uh, ruled over um, uh, the Jewish people who were, uh, who were there in uh, Jerusalem. And, 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 and he also was a teacher of Israel. So all of these things kind of says, of course, he's the kind of person that Jesus was, would interact with. And, 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 and yet... Jesus said to him, you don't really get it. With all of this, um, you must be born again. It's necessary to be born again. It's necessary to be born of the Spirit in order to see the kingdom of God, in order to enter the kingdom of God. And, and that, that was astounding, no doubt, to Nicodemus and maybe anybody else who would ever hear these things. Because who else uh, could see or enter into the kingdom of heaven except other than someone like this great religious ruler, teacher person. And yet, Jesus said, no, 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 no. You can't on your own. You must be born again. That's not a command, by the way. It's just simply a statement of fact. This is what is necessary in order for you to see to enter the kingdom of heaven. And thus, Nicodemus would have to see that all of his doing and all of his working and all of his achievement, none of that was what would enable him to see or to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But but, but this woman, on the one hand, we would see her need perhaps more quickly because of the moral issues in her life. But Jed would wonder, why is it that Jesus is paying attention to her? And then we realize that he comes for all kinds of people, for the religious elite, but also for one like this woman who is at this well. Because you see, uh, he uh, says to her, right, uh, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, See, he comes with a gift. He comes with a gift of God. It's, it's something that's free. It's something that's to be given and received. It's grace, you see. Um, Nicodemus would come to know that, understand that, because of how Jesus explained it to him. You've got to be born again. And we realize that birth is a gift. Being born isn't something that you work <laughs> or participate in in order to bring about. You find yourself alive. None of us conceived ourselves. Uh, None of us gave birth to ourselves. Uh, We can't be commanded to be born. Uh, It's simply something that happens. We find ourselves alive. And as we said last Sunday, we know that we find ourselves alive spiritually because we have uh, these spiritual indicators of, of repentance. We see it. We see ourselves striving and realize that isn't what brings us to God. 
doesn't our, our merit, but it must be this gift that's given. And so we're born again, you see. We're born uh, of the Spirit. Um, and this woman, she didn't see it right then. <laughs> and Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Well, Jesus is offering her living water, this, this, this that springs up, as he'll say, uh, into eternal life. And, and for her, when she thinks of water, no doubt thinking of something extremely important, especially in that particular area of the world, especially at that particular time, water was, was very important. Without it, one would die. But there were different mm, qualities, if you will, of water. There was, there was water that came from a spring that was the best. There was water that came from a well that you dug that was ground underground and you brought it up and it was good. Then there was water that would be caught in a cistern perhaps uh, that would be rainwater and runoff and all of that. Uh, Not so good. So here she was getting water out of a well and for her Jesus is offering her better water, easier water to get, water that comes from a spring and and all she can think about is, is that kind of water. And so uh, she says to him, uh, verse 11, uh, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. In other words, Jacob even had to dig for it. And, and uh, what do you, you don't have any, any cups, you don't have any ladle, you don't have anything to get a any bucket. Uh, and where is it anyway? And so she's still thinking uh, along those Lines, but she says, give it to me so I won't have to come back here and experience all this and I won't have to be thirsty. Why is Jesus talking about thirst? Why is he talking about water? Well, on the one hand, you could say, well, he's thirsty because he was. This scripture says that he had walked a long way. He was weary. Being a man, he would be thirsty. He was hungry. And so in that sense, uh, it made sense for him to be talking about water but we get he's talking about something other than the water that's coming from this well we realize he's talking about eternal life we realize he's talking about that which really satisfies not just that takes our physical thirst away for a moment but that which takes a deeper thirst away there's a sense in which what Jesus is saying as human beings to this woman particularly but to all of us as human beings you're thirsting after something and you can't Quench it. It's deep within you. But I can give you something, Jesus says, that will take this thirst that's in you and I can really satisfy it. Do you hear that? He says, I can really satisfy the thirst that's within you. You see, we... Try to satisfy our souls and satisfy this thirst in so many different ways, whether by by being successful, right? If only I can achieve a certain amount of success and notoriety and popularity and all of that. If I can achieve that and position and, 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 and status, then I can get people to accept me and to to like me and 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 even envy me. In fact, uh, sociologists have coined this new phrase called the thirst trap. 
Uh, the thirst trap is, is people who are thirsting for attention. Uh, they, they need it so selfies happen. And Thursday often is a day for people to send these selfies out to, to show, look at me, admire me, uh, envy me. This need, this thirst to be accepted, to be received, uh, to even be loved. We think we can find it in, in pleasure, right? If only I have enough happiness, if only I do that which makes me happy. Whatever those things are that we pile up that we do. Or maybe knowledge, if I can only be smart enough or have enough possessions. Or if my health is good enough, if I can obsess on, on even exercise and, and how I take care of my body. All that being good, of course, but, but that's where I can be satisfied. Or for this woman, perhaps, it was in all these relationships. Somehow, if I had the right man, somehow that would quench my thirst. You know, as we read through the scripture, we find first in the little wonderful preacher book of the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes. And he says, it's all vanity. When people read Ecclesiastes, they come to me and say, what's this all about? And I, I try to tell people, this is called an apologetic of pessimism. He's trying to lay out what life is like really without God, with glimpses of God thrown in as we, as we come to it. But what he evaluates is if we pursue success, if we pursue wealth, if we pursue pleasure, if we pursue knowledge, uh, all of that satisfies for a while. But it ends up being unsatisfying because it can't really quench what's really deep down and necessary uh, within us. Uh, St. Augustine uh, put it like this in the fourth century, he says, God, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Blaise Pascal, uh, who was he? He was everything. He was a mathematician, a, a physicist, a philosopher in the 17th century. He says, what else does this craving and this helplessness Proclaim, but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. He tries in vain to fill it with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help. Since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. Uh, it's been summarized more popularly. There's this vacuum within us, a hole within us. that can only be filled by God. It can only be satisfied by him. That's what Jesus is about here with this woman. He's saying, yes, I, I know you're, uh, I'm thirsty. You're thirsty physically. But, but think about this with me. You're really thirsting. You really want something to satisfy your soul. You're going after it in all kinds of ways. And nothing really is satisfying. Because you see, even relationships, even good relationships can't satisfy the deep longings of our hearts. We can't make them the ultimate thing that says, if this is good, then I have life. 
Because you see, you put so much pressure and expectation on that relationship. We know this even in marriage. We put so much pressure and expectation upon the, uh, on our spouse that we'll simply crush our spouse under those expectations. No one can meet them. It can happen. Even in the best of relationships, we'll fail each other. And even in the best of relationships, we'll find that we're sometimes the cause of more angst than we relieve. It just can't be. And while hard work and success is a good thing, if we make that the ultimate thing, we'll be insecure our whole lives because we're going to wonder, when will this fail? When will I not be on top? When I, will I not be the success? If we put in on our health, we'll realize that will fail us over time. And we'll eventually die. It can't be the ultimate thing. And, and trouble happens in the context of life. Is there any hope here? Is, is there really any value to any of this? Can I really know quenched spiritual life, thirst in the midst of difficulties? And Jesus says, yes. I'm he, he says. Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, 20th century English uh, journalist, um, in a sermon called Living Water, put it like this of his own life. He said, I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the internal revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake in trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might even happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you and beg you to believe me. Multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they're nothing. Less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draft of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. That's the sense of it. It's all right. Bruce Springsteen says, everybody has a hungry heart. Really, he should have said thirsty. Would have been better. The apostle writes this in Philippians chapter 3. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, I really have accomplished everything you could possibly imagine for any person to say that I'm satisfied in my soul. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. In other words, I've done all the religious things rightly in a good religious home. 
of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I've kept even to the Hebrew language, he says. As to the law of Pharisee, that is, I've obeyed everything. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He said, no one would, no one would blame me. No one can point to anything I haven't done that I was supposed to do. But whatever gain I had accounted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. By any means possible that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. The apostle says, really, it's only by knowing by really knowing Christ. It isn't by all the things you see that uh, that I've done. So we come back to our passage and the woman has asked Jesus for this living water. And then verse 16, uh, it looks like we have one of these non-sequiturs from Jesus again. You remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus, he made a statement about Jesus being a great teacher. And then all of a sudden, Jesus gets into this idea about being born again. You go, but Jesus knew what he needed to say. He knew what this conversation really needed to go. And still again, Jesus says to her after she asks for this water. And Jesus said, before we get there, in a sense, go call your husband and come here. And you say, well, what's that all about? It's as if Jesus is saying, a couple of things really need to happen. If you're really, really to get, receive, understand, embrace, imbibe this living water, you need to see something about yourself. And you need to see something about me. And uh, she said to him, I have no husband. Um, you wonder, is he avoiding, evading, you know, all of this? And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. So what you've said is true. And all of a sudden, she would realize that he knows, must know, if he knows this, everything about her. And he just happened along her. He's, he's not from around here. She knows that. She's talking. He's talking to her. And yet he knows everything there is about her. And yet still he's talking to her. He knows what kind of woman she is. And yet still he's talking to her. And he's saying to her, I know who you are. But still I, I give you, I offer you this real life. This eternal life. This living, this living water. Now somehow... Really, if, if he had said something like that to Nicodemus, I know who you are, so here's the living water, we would go, okay, he probably deserves it in some way. For this woman, we go, Jesus, really? Even for her? And so then the woman says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. She knows he knows things. So then she begins to engage him really about worship. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you in Jerusalem say, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, again, that seems like a crazy thing to bring up at this point in time, but not so crazy. 
she realizes he's a prophet. She realizes she's talking about God now. She realizes that, that okay, now, if that's the case, where do I go to meet God? Do I go to this mountain or do I go to that mountain? And Jesus said, it's not about mountains. It's not about where, it's who. It's me, he says. Verse 26. I who speak to you am he. He says, if you want to worship God, if you want to be restored to God, if you want this living water, if you want eternal life, it comes through me. It's not on that mountain or that mountain. It's, it's me because you see the hours come. I'm really going to die. I'm really going to make this happen. It's really going to come through me. Uh, I'm really going to be able to restore you to God. So come to me. I am really uh, the one, you see. My thirst will be quenched in him and him alone. This, This deepest thirst. See, the deepest thirst, in one sense we could say, is for us to really be known and really be loved. I mean, that's, that's the deepest desire of the heart. And, and then we take that the next step, of course. And that deepest desire is to be known and know that we're loved by God. See, simply... To be loved but not known is completely unsatisfying. We're all in relationships like that. We're all in relationships where we've put our best foot forward in that relationship. And, and we know that the other person really thinks the best of us. And, and in that sense loves us. But, but we're, we know we're on shaky ground. You know, We know that once they get to know us, perhaps <laughs> their view of us might change. It's not satisfying at all, you see. Be known, to be not be known and be loved really isn't satisfying at all. To be known and to be rejected because we're known is our biggest nightmare. That we've let ourselves be known and then we've been rejected. But to be known be loved to be known and to be loved by God it's heaven it's everything our soul desires but there's something in us in there there's something in us that we know that we're not lovable in that sense that we've rebelled against God so what do we do about that well what what made this woman's whole life was the fact that Jesus knew everything about her and yet still offered this living water. And so she went and told everyone that. That was the beauty of what she saw in this Jesus. That, that he knows me. And, and still, he says, eternal life is, is, is for you. Now he can only say that because he knew the hour had come. He knew why he was there. He knew he was there to pay for her sins. I don't know how much of all that she put together at this moment in time. The text doesn't tell us. Uh, and yet still, she knew that real Thirst was really quenched in him. Indeed, indeed it really, it really is. Do you remember? 
when Jesus was speaking about those who are blessed. When Jesus was speaking about those who are blessed, those who are really, deeply happy, joyful, content, satisfied. How did he put it? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Who are the real satisfied ones? The ones who begin by saying, I have five hus- I've had five husbands and the one I'm with right now isn't my husband. That is to say, I have nothing at all to commend myself to God. For him to receive me, for him to accept me. I have nothing at all. To really be known. To really lay it out there. And to really know that he knows, that you know, that he knows. Born spirit. Nothing is held back. See, our difficulty, the reason we so often thirst and the thirst isn't quenched is because we're not ready to start there. We're not really ready to begin there with God. We're trying to suppress this truth. We're trying to make it look like even to him that everything's okay. We're trying to, 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 to make it up to him before he finds out what has really happened. Or we're trying to make it up to others before they find out what's really happened. Or we're trying to, to, to do our best so that uh, we can prove that we're really not that bad. We really don't need all that. And, and, and it's trying to suppress that. It just makes us unquenchably thirsty. Just can't be satisfied. And so he says, no, 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 no. I already know. I already know. I could already tell you. Know that. And when you know that, then you can see, enter, have as a gift, the kingdom of heaven. It's yours to live and know you live in the presence of God. Of course, Jesus can say that. Why? Because he can say that because he, he knows he came to bear penalty for all that sin. So he says, oh, I can give you this water. But you've got to start there. And then mourn, that is to say, you've got to get it. You have to understand, you have to grieve and, and realize that, oh, this was all wrong, this, this life I lived. That's the real mourning. That's the real grief. Well, there's all kinds of grief that we mourn and we trust that the Lord can comfort us. But here he says, no, blessed are those who mourn, who get there being poor in spirit. And, and so now mourn over that. Regret that. Say, it happened, though I wish it hadn't, I'm sorry. And he brings comfort. What's the comfort? Forgiveness. Restoration. One of the most joyful parts of our worship service every Sunday 
should be the prayer of confession. I don't know if you smile when you read the prayer of confession. You shouldn't smile because you're happy of all your sin, but smile in the sense that you know that as I admit this, as I come to grips with this, here I am with all my people, and, and I'm, 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 I'm able to say before you and before everyone else, look, I've sinned. You know it. God knows it. I can... I don't have to pretend... I'm sad about it in that sense. I mourn over it in that sense. But I know that this comfort is coming and the comfort that comes, comes in that assurance that we hear Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And that, oh, wretched man that I am this morning. But, but, but no, I know that my sins have been taken by Jesus and the guilt thereof and therefore I'm forgiven my sins. Whew. Then blessed are the meek. Well, I'm, 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 I'm humbled by all of this before God and before you. And I'm humbled and I think, I don't deserve anything at all. And the Lord says, well, here's everything. You inherit the earth. Now you can have every good thing. Because it's not your ultimate, I'm your ultimate. And so now it's all in perspective. And so now when when something comes, you give thanks to me because you know you're poor in spirit. You know what you deserve uh, and you're humbled before me and before others. And now all these good things that come to you, you can embrace them in in the right context, the right understanding and say, oh yes, this is a gift from God and I'm thankful for it. You're no longer making it your God, but now you're just receiving it from God. And and, you can rest in that. There's a real quenching of of your thirst. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. What you really know you desire, you need is, is to be right with God. That's the real thirst, you see. And only Jesus can make us right with him. It's only because of his righteousness given to us, imputed to us, placed upon us, I was watching a short video this week with a couple of um, real solid um, uh, church leaders. And uh, John MacArthur and uh, Al Mohler. And, and they were talking about the fact that, that in labeling us as believers that the word evangelical has now been pretty distorted. And, and they both agreed that it had been lost as a good description of, of, of sort of, of what it once was, which means that it meant that we believe that there's only one way of salvation, and that's through faith in Christ. And uh, John MacArthur, a pastor from California, some note, said that another theologian who's now passed away, R.C. Sproul, said that we should be called imputationists. They all laughed because it's really not quite catchy. But it's really true that we believe that we've received, imputed upon us, credited to us, given to us, is the righteousness of Jesus. And he says, all right now, if you want to be right with God, and you come to Jesus, and you receive his righteousness and forgiveness of sins, then you will be filled. That is, you'll be satisfied. That is, every hunger be satisfied. Every thirst will be quenched. That's the very point of it. 
You see, the real blessing comes in, you know that he knows that you know that he knows everything about you. And yet still, you know that he knows that you know that he knows that you know that he's the source of living water. That's the real blessing, you see. So he says, listen, you'll never find it. You'll never know it. Jesus says to you, do you come really to me? Do you remember on the cross of all the things that Jesus said, one of which was, I thirst. That moment in time, he was thirsty physically, obviously. His throat was probably dry, his, his lips parched. But, but really, he was thirsting for us. Not for us in the sense wanting us, although he did. But he was thirsting uh, in our place. He was saying nothing satisfies. Nothing at all satisfies at this moment. Why? Because the guilt of the sin of sinners is upon me. I'm experiencing that unquenchable thirst that these people have. And so he thirsted for us. Why? So we'll never have to thirst. So that we will know the deep, satisfying forgiveness, acceptance, love, restoration with God that really is the deepest and most profound longing of our hearts. So let me ask you this. When you encounter this one who is the Christ, when you encounter Jesus, uh, do you really see it? Do you you really realize that he knows every single thing about you? More more than you, you even know. Everything. Every dark corner, if you will. He knows everything about you. And, 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 And do you know... He still comes to you and says, this living water is for the likes of you. It's for the likes of you. I've come, he says, to give life. I've come to restore. I've come to save. Now, receive it. Believe it. Hmm. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us. That's... That we'd receive this living water if we haven't already. And if we have, that we'd rejoice in it. Perhaps renewed in us. Perhaps we need to be refreshed by it. Perhaps we've forgotten. Perhaps we've run down this trail. We've run down that trail. we tried to embrace this. we tried to embrace that. And, 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 and we find ourselves thirsting. Unsatisfied. When we needn't. Because the one who is the giver of this real living water is among us. So I pray that each of us would spend time laying out before you, God, through Jesus, all of our lives and each nook and cranny and realizing still though Jesus has come for us. We may believe in him and be satisfied. Father, I pray that none of us would make our jobs or our success or our health or any relationships 
or our religiosity or good works. The ultimate thing in our lives, but rather we've come to you, Jesus, and submit them all to you. On this day, I pray that you would refresh all those who are finding life really difficult. That you would come and be living water to them. I pray on this morning particularly for uh, Debbie Rask um, as her father passed away last evening. I pray for Debbie that you would uh, be with her and Scott and their families. That you would refresh them even in the midst of this difficult time. To know still that they can face these days filled, satisfied in you. And may that be true for us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Please.